Chapter 3 Round About a Great Estate by Richard Jeffries. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 A Pack of Stoats Birds. The sweet scent from a bean field beside the road caused me to linger one summer morning in a gateway under the elms. A gentle south wind came over the beans, bearing with it the odor of their black and white bloom. The Overborough Road ran through part of the Oakbourne property, which was far too extensive to be enclosed in a ring fence, and the timber had therefore been allowed to grow so that there was an irregular avenue of trees for some distance. I faced the bean field, which was on the opposite side, leaning back against the gate which led into some of Hillary's wheat. The silence of the highway, the soft wind, the alternate sunshine and shade as the light clouds passed over, induced a dreamy feeling, and I cannot say how long I had been there, when something seemed, as it were, to cross the corners of my half-closed eyes. Looking up, I saw three stoats gallop across the road, not more than ten yards away. They issued from under the footpath, which was raised and had a drain through it to relieve the road of flood water in a storm. The drain was faced with a flat stone with a small round hole cut in it. Coming from the wheat at my back, the stoats went down into the ditch, thence entered the short tunnel under the footpath, and outed at stone portal, over the road to the broad sward on the opposite side, then along a furrow in the turf to the other hedge, and so into the bean field. They galloped like racehorses straining for the victory, the first leading, the second but a neck behind, and the third not half a length. The smooth road rising slightly in the center showed them well, and thus, with the neck stretched out in front and the tail extended in the rear, the stoat appears much longer than on a mound or in the grass. A second or so afterwards, two more started from the same spot, but I was perhaps in the act to move, for before they had gone three yards, they saw me and rushed back to the drain. After a few minutes, the larger of these two, probably the male, ventured forth again and reached the middle of the road when he discovered that his more timorous companion had not followed but was only just peeping out he stopped and elevated his neck some five or six inches planting the forefeet so as to lift him up high to see around while his hindquarters were flush with the road quite flat in the dust in which his tail was trailing his reddish body and white neck the clear-cut head the sharp ears and the dark eye were perfectly displayed in that erect attitude as his companion still hesitated, he cried twice, as if impatiently, Check, check! A sound like placing the tongue against the teeth and drawing it away. But she feared to follow, and he returned to her. Thinking they would attempt to cross again presently, I waited quietly. A lark came over from the wheat, and, alighting, dusted herself in the road, hardly five yards from the mouth of the drain, and was there some minutes. A robin went still closer, almost opposite the hole, both birds apparently quite unconscious of the bloodthirsty creatures concealed within it. Some time passed, but the two stoats did not come out, and I saw no more of them. They probably retreated to the wheat as I left the gateway, and would remain there till the noise and jar of my footsteps had ceased in the distance. Examining the road, there was a trail where the first three had crossed in quick succession. In the thick white dust, their swift feet 
had left a line drawn roughly yet lightly the pause leaving not an exact but an elongated ill-defined impression but where the fourth stopped elevated his neck and cried to his mate there was a perfect print of the forefeet side by side so slight a track would be obliterated by the first cart that came by till that day i had never seen so many as five stoats together hunting in a pack it would seem as if stoats and weasels had regular roots for i now recollected that in the previous winter when the snow was on the ground i had surprised two weasels almost exactly in the same spot at other times too i have seen solitary stoats and weasels which may have had companions in the hedge hunting along that mound both before and since I was at first going to tell Hillary about the pack, but afterward refrained, as he would at once proceed to set up gins in the run, while I thought I should like to see the animals again. But I got him to talk about stoats and weasels, and found that he had not himself seen so many together. There was, however, a man about the place who told the tale of some weasels he had seen. It was that rascal old Aaron, but he could not listen to such a fellow. Hillary would tell me nothing further, having evidently a strong dislike to the man. It seems there were two Aarons, uncle and nephew. Old Aaron was the arch-poacher of the parish. Young Aaron worked regularly at Luckett's place. This young laborer, the man who fell asleep on the milking-stool, was one of the best of his class, a great, powerful fellow, but good-natured, willing, and pleasant to speak to. He was a favorite with many, and with reason, for he had a gentleness of manner beyond his station, and, till you knew his weakness, you could not but take an interest in him. His vice was drink. He was always down at the Luckett's place, and through him I made acquaintance with his disreputable uncle, who was at first rather shy of me, for he had seen me about with Hillary, and between the two there was a mortal feud." Old Aaron could not keep out of Oakbourne Chase, and Hillary was down upon him. Hillary was, indeed, keener than the keepers. The old poacher saw the weasels in the pitching. This was a private lane which ran through the recesses of the chase where the wood was thickest and most secluded. It had been made for the convenience of communication between the upper and lower farms and for hauling timber, the gates at each end being kept locked. In one place the lane descended the steepest part of the wooded hill, and in frosty weather it was not easy even to walk down it there. Sarsen stones, gathered out of the way of the plough in the arable fields, had been thrown down in it at various times with the object of making a firm bottom. Rounded and smooth and very hard, these stones irregularly placed with gaps and intervals, when slippery with hoarfrost, were most difficult to walk on once or twice men out hunting had been known to gallop down the hill the extreme of headlong bravado for if there was any frost it was sure to linger in that shady lane and the slip of the iron shod hoof could scarcely fail to result in a broken neck it was like riding down a long steep flight of steps aaron one day was engaged with his ferret and nets in the pitching just at the bottom of the hill where there grew a quantity of brake fern as tall as the shoulder it was shriveled and yellow, but thick enough to give him very good cover. Every now and then he looked out into the lane to see if anyone was about, and on one of these occasions saw what he imagined at first to be a colony of rats migrating. 
but when they came near racing down the lane he found they were weasels he counted fourteen and thought there were one or two more aaron also told me a curious incident that happened to him very early one morning toward the beginning of spring the snow was on the ground and the moon was shining brightly as he got on the railway a few miles from oakbourne and walked some distance up it he did not say what for but probably is the nearest way to a cover as he entered the deep cutting where the line came round a sharp curve he noticed strange spots on the snow and upon examination found it was blood for the moment he thought there had been an accident but shortly afterwards he picked up a hare's pad severed from the leg and next a hare's head and presently came on a quantity of similar fragments all fresh he collected them and found they had belonged to six hares which had been cut into pieces by a passing train the animals were so mutilated as not to be of the least use when i told hilary of this he at once pronounced it impossible and nothing but one of aaron's lies on reflection however i am not so sure that it is impossible nor can i see any reason why the old poacher should invent a falsehood of the kind it was just a time of the year when hares are beginning to go mad and as they were not feeding but playing together they might have strayed up on the line just as they do along roads most persons must have observed how quietly a train sometimes steals up so quietly as to be inaudible a fact that has undoubtedly been the death of many unfortunates now just at this spot there was a sharp curve and if the driver shut off steam as he ran round it the train very likely came up without a sound the sides of the cutting being very steep the hares when at last they perceived their danger would naturally rush straight away along the metals coming at great speed the engine would overtake and destroy them a miserable inn for the poor creatures in the midst of their moonlight frolic but what aaron laid stress on was the fact that he could not even sell the skins they were so cut to pieces the rooks nests in the chase were very numerous and were chiefly built in elm trees but some in tall spruce firs it was easy to know when the birds had paired as a couple of rooks could then be often seen perched gravely side by side upon an old nest in the midst of leafless boughs deliberating about its repair there were some poplars near a part of the rookery and when the nests were fully occupied with young the old birds frequently alighted on the very top of an adjacent poplar the slender brush-like tip of the tree bent with their weight curving over like a whip to spring up when they left the rooks were fond of maize boldly descending among the poultry kept in a rickyard within a short distance of their trees if anyone has a clump of trees in which rooks seemed inclined to build and it is desired to encourage them it would appear a good plan to establish a poultry yard in the same field they're certain to visit the spot one day i watched a rook pursuing a swift and making every effort to overtake and strike it the rook displayed great power of wing twisting and turning now descending or turning on one side to glide more rapidly and uttering short cause of eagerness or anger but just eluding the heavy rush of its pursuer the swift doubled and darted away before it, as if tempting the enemy to charge, and then enjoying his disappointment. Several other swifts wheeled above at a distance, apparently watching. 
these evolutions lasted some minutes brook and swift rising higher and higher into the air until tired of being chased the swift went straight away at full speed easily outstripping the rook which soon desisted from the attempt to follow when birds are thus combating the chief aim of each is to get above the other as any elevation gives an advantage this may be continually noticed in spring when fighting is always going on and is as characteristic of the small birds as the larger at first i thought it was a crow after the swift but came to the conclusion that it must be a rook because the battle began over the rookery and afterwards the aggressor sailed away to where some rooks were feeding nor would a crow have exhibited such agility of wing swallows often buffet a crow but this was a clear case of a rook attacking in the country rooks never perch on houses and but seldom on sheds unless fresh thatched when they come to examine the straw as also on the ricks but in brighton which is a treeless locality a rook may sometimes be seen on a chimney-pot in the midst of the town and the pinnacles of the pavilion are a favorite resort a whole flock of rooks and jackdaws often wheel about the domes of that building at the chase a rook occasionally mounted on a molehill recently thrown up and scattered the earth right and left with his bill striking now to one side and now to the other hillary admitted that rooks destroyed vast quantities of grubs and creeping things but was equally positive that they feasted on grain and indeed it could not be denied that a crop of wheat almost ripe is a very favorite resort of a flock he had seen rooks carry away ears of wheat detached from the stalks to an open spot for better convenience they would follow the dibbling machine taking each grain of seed wheat in succession guided to the exact spot by the slight depression made by the dibble every evening all the rooks of the neighborhood gathered into vast flocks and returned to roost in the woods of the chase but one winter afternoon there came on the most dense fog that had been known for a length of time and a flock of rooks on their way as usual to the chase stopped all night in a clump of trees on the farm a mile from the roosting place this the oldest laborer had never known them to do before in the winter just past eighteen seventy nine to eighty there were several very thick fogs during sharp frost one afternoon i noticed a small flock of starlings which seemed unable to find their way home to the copse where i knew vast numbers of them roosted this flock as it grew dusk settled in an elm by the roadside then removed to another shaking down the rime from the branches and a third time wheeled around and perched in an oak at that hour on ordinary days the starlings would all have been flying fast in a straight line for the copse but these were evidently in doubt and did not know which direction to take hillary disliked to see the wood pigeons in his wheat fields the wood pigeon beats the grains out of the wheat ear with a bill striking it while on the ground the sparrows again clear the standing wheat ears at which little distance look thin and disarrayed and when handled are empty there were many missile thrushes about the chase they're fond of a wooded district they pack together in summer and part in winter just the opposite in that respect to so many other birds which separate in warm weather and congregate as it grows cold so that the lower the temperature the larger the flock 
in winter and spring the missile thrushes fly alone or not more than two together after their young have left the nest they go in small packs i saw ten or twelve rise from an arable field on the eighteenth of june last year there do not often seem to be more than a dozen together i have counted ten in a pack on the sixteenth of september and seven together as late as the second of october soon after that they appear to separate and act on their individual wishes starlings in like manner pack after their young can fly but they do not separate in autumn it may be remarked that by autumn the young missile thrushes would not only fly well but would have been educated by the old birds and would have come into maturity their natural independence might then come into play but these are effects rather than causes besides which i think birds and animals often act from custom rather than for advantage among men custom survived for centuries after the original meaning has been lost i had always been told by country people that the missile thrush was a solitary bird and when i first observed a pack and mentioned it some incredulity was expressed very naturally in summer people do not see much but hay and wheat it was noticed on the farms about the chase in the springs of eighteen seventy eight and eighteen seventy nine that the corncrakes which had formerly been so numerous and proclaimed their presence so loudly were scarcely heard at all it is a little outside my subject since it did not occur in the chase but the other day a friend was telling me how he had been hunted by bucks while riding a bicycle he was passing through a forest in the summer when he suddenly became aware of six or seven bucks coming down a glade after him the track being rough he could not ride at full speed probably they would have outstripped him even if he had been able to do so and they were overtaking him rapidly as they came up he saw that they meant mischief and fearing a bad fall he alighted by a tree behind which he thought to dodge them but no sooner did he touch the ground than the buck so furiously rushing after him stopped dead in their career he stepped towards them and directly they saw him walking they retreated hastily to a distance the first berries to go as the autumn approaches are those of the mountain ash both blackbirds and thrushes begin to devour the pale red bunches hanging on the mountain ashes as early as the fourth of september last year starlings are fond of elderberries a flock alighting on a bush black with ripe berries will clear bunches in a very short time haws or peggles which often quite cover the hawthorn bushes are not so general a food as the fruit of the briar hips are preferred at least the fruit of the briar is the first of the two to disappear the hip is pecked open by thrushes redwings and blackbirds at the tip the seeds extracted and the part where it is attached to the stalk left just as if the contents had been sucked out greenfinches too will eat hips haws are often left even after severe frosts sometimes they seem to shrivel or blacken and may not perhaps be palatable then missile thrushes and wood pigeons eat them last winter in the stress of the sharp and continued frosts the green finches were driven in december to swallow the shriveled blackberries still on the brambles the fruity part of the berries was of course gone and nothing remained but the seeds or pips dry and hard as wood they were reduced to feeding on this wretched food 
perhaps the last of the seeds available are those of the docks this is well known to bird fowlers and on a dry day in january they take two large bunches of docks red docks they call them tied round the centre like faggots and well smeared at the top with bird lime these are placed on the ground by a hedge and near them a decoy goldfinch in a cage goldfinches eat dockseed and if any approach the decoy bird calls the wild bird descends from the hedge to feed on the dockseed and is caught goldfinches go in pairs all the winter and work upon the hedges together in spring the young green buds upon the hawthorn are called cuckoo's bread and cheese by the ploughboys. End of chapter 3